KMTT, today is Tuesday, the Shur in Parshat HaShavua will be given by Havav Alex Israel. This week's Parsha, Parsha Kitavo, uh, is dominated by two themes. The first is the notion of ceremony, and the second is the Tochacha. Let me try and elaborate and explain. Our Parsha begins with two colorful, impressive ceremonies. The first is the bringing of the Bikurim to the Bet Migdash, to the temple. Uh, each, each season, each agricultural season, the farmer brings his first fruits to the temple, and when he does that, he makes a proclamation. Uh, the proclamation we know actually from our Haggadah. It is Arami Ovedavi. If I had to summarize the content of this particular statement, uh, it makes a point that I am bringing my first fruits not just as a sign of my own personal thanks, but rather as the culmination of an entire historical process. In the proclamation we relate that we, relate that we were a homeless nation wandering from land to land, and because of that we suffered. However, now, by good fortune of God, God has given us our land, and we have uh, the privilege to be able to work that land, to farm its soil, and to produce fruits, and therefore, as a sign of thanks for our entire homeland, for our rootedness, for our ability to flourish and prosper in the culture of a nation-state, we are thanking God. That is the proclamation of the Bikurim that the farmer makes at the temple. In the next parsha, which also relates to agriculture, a land flowing with milk and honey, the farmer makes what is known as Vidoy Ma'asrot, the confession of tithes. You probably know that there is an entire range of donations or separations that a farmer has to make from his farm produce. For example, we know in our kitchens that we separate challah. In addition to challah, there was truma, which went to the Kohen, Ma'aser, which went to the Levi. Some of the produce had to be eaten in Jerusalem or given to the poor. And at the end of a number of years of farming, the agriculturalist comes to the temple and he makes an unbelievable profession. We call it a vidoy, a confession. But in fact, it is the opposite of the confession that we make on Yom Kippur. Because on Yom Kippur, we say all the things we've done wrong. We have sinned. Ashamnu, bagadnu, al in this confession, the farmer says all the things he's done right. I'll quote a few lines. He says, I have removed the holy food, the truma and maser, from my property. I've given it to the levy, to the stranger, to the orphan, the widow, just as you commanded me. I have not transgressed nor neglected any one of your instructions. I've forgotten nothing. I've obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything he required of me. Wow, that's quite a statement. Imagine if we on Yom Kippur, instead of listing all the things we did wrong, would say, Yes, I made it to Shacharit. Yes, I have given tzedakah this year. I have spoken kindly to my children and learned Torah with them. I have been honest in business. I have been good to my parents. That would maybe be the equivalent of this. And it may be not surprising that after saying all the wonderful things that we have done right, we turn around to God and say, God, look down from 
your holy abode on high from the heavens and bless your people and the land which you have given us as you promised, the land flowing with milk and honey. To summarize, the opening two parashiot in Parshat Kitavo deal with ceremony, symbolic statements which are made to God uh, connected to the agriculture of the land. The entire opposite of this is represented by maybe the most prominent chunk of our parsha, known as the Tochacha, the rebuke. The Tochacha, which occupies chapter 29, 28 and 29, is a piece which says that indeed if we follow the instructions of God, we will prosper in the land, be successful, the economy will boom and we will be safe. However, if we fail to follow the laws of the Torah, we will experience invasion and ruin, we will experience exile and suffering and death. There is a tiringly long list of the terrible horrors and tragedies, the suffering and inquisition that will befall our nation uh, if we are not to follow the laws of the Torah, if we are to follow idols and not keep to God's covenant. And it's unfortunate to say that all these predictions have come true. The suffering and the famine, the siege, indeed the death, exile and dispersion of the Jewish people have all come true. And in that respect, the Tochacha provides a somber, weighty end to a parasha which begins in a very positive light. What I would like to do is actually discuss the parasha which comes in between these two, because in a sense it is a bridge. It is a bridge between the ceremony, the symbolic ceremonies at the beginning of the parasha, and the covenant. And what I would like to do is read out the psukim, the verses, which deal with the uh, ceremony which takes place at Har Eval, Mount Eval and Mount Grizim, near today's Shechem. And there is a fascinating description of a ceremony which takes place there. I'll read out from the text of Sefer Dvarim uh, the description. And it shall be on the day that you cross the Jordan to the land which God gives you, you shall set up large stones and you should cover them with plaster. And on those stones you should write, write the words of the, this Torah when you cross the Jordan in order that you may come into the land which God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey. When you cross the Jordan, you should set up these stones on a har eval and you should cover them with plaster. There you should offer up peace offerings and you should eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. Now what is this command of these stones? What are they meant to do? Let's summarize. When we cross the Jordan, we're meant to take large stones, cover them in plaster, write the words of the Torah on them. And there we are meant to um, take them to Harival Har and Hargrizim. Uh, we're meant to bring sacrifices there and eat and rejoice there. What else happens at Harival and Hargrizim? Well, what happens there is a covenantal ceremony where six of the tribes stand on one mountain and six of the tribes stand on another mountain and they recite a series of blessings and curses. If I want to understand these blessings and curses and what they do there, Maybe the most succinct way is to read the last Pasuk of chapter 28. Eile divrei habrit. These are the words of the covenant 
which God commanded Moses to make with the Jewish people in the land of Moab in addition to the covenant which he already made with them at Mount Sinai. This is a covenantal ceremony. At Harival and Harigrizim, the Jewish people receive, um, write down the law on a series of stones, and then they stand there and make a ceremony. And the ceremony goes, Blessed is be the person who keeps the Torah, cursed is the person who transgresses the Torah. The rewards for keeping the Torah are our country, a superb economy, God being with us, lots of children, lots of safety, and the penalty is death, is exile, is suffering. This is called a covenant, because we take the Torah, it's written on all the stones around us, and we pledge our allegiance to it with the rewards and penalties. But here is something fascinating. Where does the imagery of this covenant come from? Many people have noticed that this is almost a rerun, a replay, of a covenant which took place in uh, at Har Sinai 40 years earlier. If you have a Chumash in front of you, it would be worthwhile to turn to chapter 24 of Shemot, the book of Exodus chapter 24. There we see a similar ceremony take place. At Mount Sinai, when the Jews receive the Torah, they do exactly the same thing. Moses writes down the words of Torah on a book. He gets up early in the morning. And here I'm reading from chapter 24, verse 4. He writes the words to the Torah, gets up early in the morning. He builds an altar at the foot of the mountain. And he makes 12 monuments for the 12 tribes of Israel. And what the people say on that occasion is, they say the famous words, Na'aseh v'nishma. We will do and we will hear. The two ceremonies are strikingly similar. In both we have a mountain. At Mount Sinai, it's Mount Sinai. Here it is, Har Eval. In both cases there are 12 stones, 12 monuments. There it says, in, at Mount Sinai, 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. Here the 12 stones are inscribed with the words of Torah. In both ceremonies an altar is built. And the same karbanot of Olah and Shlamim are offered as part of the procedures. In both cases, something is written out aloud. A book of covenant. In Mount Sinai, it is the Ten Commandments and maybe associated texts. Here, uh, the Torah is not written on a scroll, but it's written on the monuments. And the covenant is read out, and the people have to respond. In our case, the people say, Amen. In, 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 uh, here in Parsha Kitavo, the people respond, uh, as it says in the Parsha, the Omar Kol Ha'am, Amen. They have to respond with an Amen. In Mount Sinai, uh, they say, Na'aseh Venishma. What is common with both of these things is that the people are undergoing, on a national scale, a covenantal ceremony. And maybe this parallel is reinforced by the lines that I read out before, which end Parshat Kitavo, end chapter 28. These are the words of covenant, the covenant which God commanded to Moses to cut the Bnei Israel with, in addition to the covenant which they made at Chorev. This is a rerun of Chorev. Uh, now this is pretty significant. And we might ask the question, 
why do we need a second covenant? Why do we need to have a situation where we pledge allegiance to the law at Mount Sinai? And then again, 40 years later, in Arvot Moab, before they crossed the Jordan. How many times does a nation need to pledge allegiance? Do people get married more than once to the same woman? Certainly not. You pledge allegiance once at the beginning of a relationship, and you don't repeat it. Why do we need to repeat the covenant here? So again, you could say that this is a new generation. This is not the same generation who came out of Egypt. This is a new generation who are coming into the land of Israel. After all, there have been 40 years because of the story of the Meraglim, where we had to wait in the wilderness, wandering around, waiting to enter the promised land. And therefore, this is a new generation and a new ceremony. I would like to focus, possibly, on this idea for a few minutes. Uh, when one reads the book of Yehoshua and the entry into the land of Israel, one is struck by the fact that certain events uh, which transpire in the entry to the land would seem to mirror Yitziat Mitzrayim. They seem in a rather uncanny way to mirror the Exodus. Probably the most prominent of all of these is the crossing of the Jordan River, uh, which happens by splitting the Jordan, rather than maybe building a bridge, I mean the Jordan is not so wide that they couldn't have crossed in a non-miraculous manner, and yet um, they decide, or God decides, that this should be performed by actually splitting the Jordan. Obviously this is reminiscent of the splitting of the Red Sea. Uh, For example, when the Israelites come into the land, they immediately celebrate Pesach and perform a mass Brit Milah. Um, And in fact, this uh, is very strange, because why didn't they do Brit Milah in the desert? The juxtaposition of Pesach and Milah is exactly what happened on the night of the Exodus. In fact, throughout that story, it talks about and says, and if your children ask you, as if um, the Exodus was happening once again. What I'm trying to chart out is the fact that not only this covenant at Hareval and Hargrizim not only this covenantal ceremony, but many things which are happening as we enter the land of Israel mirror the events that happened 40 years earlier. And the question obviously is why? I think the answer is very simple, but enormously powerful. In God's master plan, in God's uh, program, the idea was to have a single process, one continuum, a flow of events. The idea was to come out of Egypt, to cross the Red Sea, to go to Harsinai and accept the Torah, and then to march to Eretz Israel. The entire thing was planned to be a single procedure. It was meant to flow smoothly. And yet, The sin of the golden calf, the sin of the spies, both caused severe delays in the progress of Bnei Israel to their promised destination. Um, These were not things which were on God's itinerary. No. The plan was that we should leave Egypt amidst miracles and wonders, accept the Torah, 
with God's mighty hand and riding the, riding the waves of the wonders we would become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and move into Eretz Yisrael on the crest of that inspiration of that covenant to set up an entirely new regime, a new society which would effect, reflect the values of the Torah holiness, justice, righteousness in Eretz Yisrael in short the generation of the Exodus the people who experienced Yitzhak Mitzrayim should have been the Ba'eh Ha'aretz, the generation which entered the Promised Land. However, unfortunately, events did not transpire this way. After the spies and the decree of 40 years, now there is a generation gap. The generation who entered Israel did not experience Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Their feet did not walk through the sea. They did not stand at the foot of Har Sinai and answer exuberantly, Na'asev Nishma. For them, it's a memory, a memory of childhood or or possibly something they were told by their grandfather. It is a vicarious experience, it is distant, it is remote. Now okay, we also have to experience um, memories. We also know Yitzhak Mitzrayim from our father's father. But here it is different, because there is an enormous challenge for the generation who are Ba'e Ha'aretz. There is an enormous challenge to the people who are going to set up the nation of Israel in their land. They have to create an entire new nation state, an entire new culture. They need to have the power of those experiences. They need to themselves have pledged allegiance to Torah mitzvot. They need to have seen the power of God through miracles and wonders. And therefore, God orchestrates a rerun a mini exodus. The events of exodus are experienced as we enter Eretz Israel in miniature, but in some manner. And it's within this framework that we should see the covenant of Harival and Hargrizim. This is Har Sinai for the second generation. The second generation cannot pledge allegiance to the land or cannot start setting up the land without first committing themselves to the covenant of Torah the bracha and kala, which are the key to the land. And hence, when we read through Parashat Kitavo, there is such a strong emphasis of land, and when we talk about these massive stones which are inscribed with the Torah as we go into the land, uh, it says, You should write the words of the Torah on these stones, so that they may indeed come to the land. And if you check the commentaries of the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban, they say the emphasis of this ceremony is to express that it is only by virtue of the Torah that we shall be able to conquer the land, only by virtue of the strict observance of God's law that we shall retain control of the land and we shall make it a success. And so, now we understand the need for this ceremony. Uh, it is not, as maybe some would see, a sense of closure to the 40 years of the Midbar, Moses uh, bowing out and committing the people before he's about to die. No, I would not see the covenant at Aravot Mo'av as the final event of the Midbar. Rather, I would see it as the starting gun, the beginning of the generation of Eretz Yisrael. It is not Moses' final act. In a sense, it is Moses helping Yehoshua to do his first act, the beginning of the generation of Eretz Yisrael. Um, 
And here we come to maybe a further question, which is a sense of confusion. When exactly does this ceremony happen? If you look at the final verse of chapter 28, it talks about the fact that these are the words of the covenant which God made with B'nai Israel, Be'eretz Mo'av, in the land of Mo'av. In addition, in Parshat Nitzavim, Moses stands with the people and says, Atem Nitzavim Hayom Kulchem Nifnei Hashem Elokechem. You stand today, all of you before God, to commit yourselves to the covenant of the Lord your God. Chapter 29, verse 9. The covenant is taking place when? Today. Now this is curious because it would appear that the covenant did not take place today. It takes place in Eretz Yisrael. It takes place at Har'eval and Har'grizim. It is not taking place in Moses' lifetime. It is taking place in Joshua's lifetime. As we read again in the parasha, when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up these stones at Har'eval and Har'grizim. And Moses commanded the people and said, these will stand on Har'grizim when you cross the Jordan. And these will stand to curse the people on Har'eval. In other words, our question is, is this ceremony taking place in Arvot Moav, in the plains of Moav, on the eastern bank of the Jordan, or is it taking place in the land of Israel itself? This is indeed a very, very difficult problem, um, and I'd like to suggest a solution. I would like to suggest the following. Indeed, the covenant is taking place for the new generation. And in fact, the ceremony will take place in the land of Israel. Only the instruction is happening in Arvot Mo'av before they cross the Jordan. And yet, it would have been near impossible for Yehoshua to make a ceremony within the land. Why? Why would it have been impossible for Yehoshua to make a new ceremony? Because had Yehoshua created his new covenantal ceremony on Harival and Hargrizim, without God's instruction through Moses, people would have said to Yehoshua, what are you doing? Why are you creating a new religion? Why are you creating a new commitment? After all, our forefathers pledged allegiance at Harsinai, they committed themselves to the covenant. Here we enter into the very difficult situation that Yehoshua finds himself as a new leader entering into the land, after having Moses as the leader of the nation for 40 years, there is a sense of distrust. It is difficult for Yehoshua to lead uh, and to emerge from the shadow of Moshe Rabbeinu. And hence, because it is so important, it is so vital for this uh, nation to undergo a new recommitment to the covenant before they enter into the land, it is done in a very, very careful way. The Torah instructs us that we will have a covenant when we go into the land. It will take place at Shechem, at Har Eval and Har Grizim. Moses even begins the covenant and says, I am beginning the process of the covenant. But the actual ceremony with the blessings and the curses does not take place on the east bank of the Jordan, but Aravot Mo'av. The actual ceremony, the writing down of the Torah on the stones, the visual symbolic covenantal ceremony which mirrors Har Sinai takes place in the land of Israel after they have crossed as we read in the book of Yehoshua in chapter 8 and so 
what we've tried to see is that our Pasha this week uh, deals with the notion of ceremonies. Ceremonies which celebrate the land of Israel, our connection with the land of Israel. Um, but whereas the first two ceremonies in the Pasha are celebrations, this third ceremony, the ceremony at Harival, is far more somber. It is a warning. And maybe even more than a warning, it is a commitment ceremony where our conditions, as every contract or covenant should do, should express the rewards for fulfillment of the contract and the penalties for breaking the contract. The rewards are the prosperity within our land, God being with us in our land, the penalties are exile, destruction and ruin. As I give this shear, what is going through my mind is um, the theme of Choresh uh, Elul and uh, Rosh Hashanah. Barosh Hashanah yikatevon uviyom tzom kippur yechatemun mi yichia umi yamut. The idea that on Rosh Hashanah we also experience a similar bracha and klala. We are also in the balance somewhere between life and death. What is fascinating here, uh, and I think comes through this year, is the notion that uh, we have always another chance. God did not make a covenant with us at Sinai and then, after we sinned, abandon us, give up on us. God said, it's true, at Sinai you committed yourself and then you broke the covenant, then you worshipped the golden calf, then you rejected my plan for you. But do you know what? Your children I will give another chance to. Forty years later there is another chance. A Haftarah has a similar theme. A Haftarah is one of the Shiva Dinachemta, one of the consoling statements of Isaiah, of Ishayahu, as he says that even despite the destruction of the first temple, there will be a future return. And indeed, the, parash, the, the Haftarah begins, Kumi ori kiva orech. The light has shone forth, or Chavor Hashem alayich zarach. The presence of God has shone upon you, Despite the fact that darkness has clouded the earth and thick fog covers, covers many nations, God will shine upon you. After the dark cloud and storms of exile, there is rebirth, there is renewal, there is the opportunity for tshuva. In that regard, the fact that there isn't just a single moment of covenant sometime in the past but rather the opportunity for renewal of the covenant. The opportunity that despite our failings and our mistakes, despite our sins, that we have um, sent our own selves into exile, we have distanced ourselves from God. There is the opportunity to make a second ceremony in a new generation, in a new context, in a new time, and to make our vows a second time, to renew our vows to God, to renew our commitment to God. And this is an enormously optimistic reality that we are dealing with here as we go to, as we read Parshat Kitavo. God doesn't accept that our failure is final. God is always open to giving us a new chance as we can um, stand once again ourselves not at Har Sinai, but in Eretz Yisrael, in the land in which we grow, in the land of agriculture, the land of life, and we can renew our promises to Hashem that despite the failings of the past, we will be faithful to the covenant.
wishing everybody Shabbat Shalom.